Well, any December birthdays in the room? There's one, two. Oh, we got a few. All right, that's good. I'm so sorry. My birthday's in December, and I feel your pain, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, I understand the concept, even though you've had more of them than I've had. But believe me, I still understand the concept. I was talking to Gerald, not necessarily everybody in here. But December birthdays, they're the worst because, you know, it's the whole, hey, this is your birthday Christmas gift. And you just want to say, oh, thank you. Actually, what I want to say to the person who does that and their birthday is like in July is to come to them in July and say, here's your birthday Christmas gift and see how that goes. Um, I'm not bitter at all about, about this at all. But for those of us who have December birthdays, we're in good company. Jesus also had a birthday near Christmas, and so he also had to deal with this, I'm sure, on a regular basis. Well, back a couple of years into Jesus' life, when the wise man or the magi came, they brought gifts, and the gifts that they brought were not that age-appropriate. You know, you've got a toddler, and they're giving him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's kind of like those of us that, you know, you're all excited about Christmas, and you open the first package, and out fall socks or underwear. And I've always wanted to ask the person that gave me those, said, look, if it wasn't for Christmas, would I not have underwear Christmas is not for that. Christmas is for gifts you want. But what's crazy is the older you get, the more excited you get about those kind of gifts now. <laughs> yes! Got a brand new set. But anyway, as Dr. Toussaint used to say, that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today, except for the fact that we're talking about Christmas. So let's turn together to the book of Luke, chapter 1. Luke 1. This week, Kathy and I watched the old 1930s version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And we chose that version because after that, you know, all these spirits of Christmas, past and present and future, are scary. But back in 1930s, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was still, you could watch it without being terrified. But you know, you know the story, Dickens' uh, story of Ebenezer Scrooge, who was a Scrooge. We get his name Scrooge. He's so uh, I I iconicized as this this uh, Scrooge, who hates Christmas and hates all things to do with Christmas. But he gets a visit from three spirits: spirit of Christmas past, spirit of Christmas present, spirit of Christmas future, and they give him a perspective of his life that totally turns him around. And after I watched that, I thought, you know, we often talk about Christmas. We always talk about Christmas every December, but we seldom talk about the spirit or the Holy Spirit of Christmas past. You know, Jesus is front and center. The Son of God is front and center when it comes to Christmas. And uh, the Father is also very often on our minds because the Father sent the Son. But the Holy Spirit is just sort of a 
backdrop to the whole Christmas story. We don't think much about him, and uh, much less do we think about you know what applications the Spirit of God would have in our lives as a result of thinking about that. So we're going to talk today about the Holy Spirit of Christmas past. And that in Luke chapter 1, we're going to start down in verse 26. It's hard to start just one place here in Luke. Luke writes long chapters. Have you ever noticed? Just look at chapter 1. It's like, what is it, 800 verses? No, it's 80 verses. I mean, 80 verses. Did you know Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any author? You may think, well, what about Paul? I'm talking word count. Word count, just Luke and Acts, is more than even the Apostle Paul. So Luke wrote a lot. Anyway, let's start at verse 26 and pick up this very familiar story, but we'll look at it from the perspective of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, we read those words, very familiar words, but think about what that must have been like. You're Mary doing whatever, you know, she was doing at that time. But she was in a house because we see that, uh, verse 28, coming in. So Gabriel is coming in and greets her. Coming in, he says, greetings, favored one. Have you ever noticed in the Bible when an angel comes to someone, he never schedules an appointment. He never sends you an email saying, you know, how's Monday at 2 o'clock look for you? Nope, he just shows up, just shows up and says greetings. And then typically, the first thing they say after that is what? Fear not, <laughs> because when you've got this, this being that's been in the glory of God, everyone, everyone to a person usually hits the, hits the floor in a coil of fear. And so there is, uh, there is the word, don't be afraid. Greetings for everyone, the Lord is with you. And so, guess what? Here we go, verse 29. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Here's a bit of trivia for you. Trivia question, I guess I could sort of pop on you. Where else in the Bible does Gabriel show up? All right, Daniel. That's all right. It, it, you're exactly right. In the book of Daniel. All right, double jeopardy. What was Gabriel talking about? What's that? The time of the end. Exactly. What, were you, what did you say? The future. That's it, close. <laughs> exactly. He's talking about the future. And he was talking specifically not just about the future, but about the coming kingdom of God. 
told Daniel, here's what the future of Israel is going to look like. And if we read the book of Daniel, we see very clearly, especially in a couple of uh, select places in Daniel, that it talks about the coming one, the coming Messiah, we would know, and it speaks that his kingdom will never end. And so uh, a Jew like Mary, when she hears these words, first of all, Gabriel puts her at ease by saying, don't be afraid. I'm here because you found favor with God. I'm not here to, you know, like lop off your head or something. I'm here because God has found favor with you. And then he unloads and says this incredible, these incredible words. I mean, there's no beating around the bush here. You found favor with God, and here's why I'm here. You will conceive in your womb. You will bear a son. And here's his name, Jesus. And then he goes on. He's going to be great. He's going to be son of the Most High. The Lord God's going to give him the throne of the father David. Ding, ding, ding. This is like all these Old Testament triggers are going off in Mary's head. The Davidic covenant is going to be fulfilled through me. I'm going to have a son who is the Messiah. Not only that, he is called the Son of God, which we will see here in just a minute. So to a well-versed Jew like Mary, these words were fulfillment of centuries of national hope and personal hope. Mary herself was a descendant of David. So was her fiancé Joseph, both of them, descendants of David. And she understood that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. Well, look at Mary's response. We know the response, but look at the way she asks it. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? Now, Mary was engaged to Joseph, and she knew the facts of life, at least she was aware of the facts of life, and uh, she fully expected to have a family with Joseph, because they did have a family after this. But her response indicated that she understood that Gabriel meant the conception was going to happen before she and Joseph would uh, consummate their marriage. So her words are confusion, not doubt. Notice she didn't ask, can this be? But how can this be? She wanted to know, how is what you're telling me, or at least what I'm perceiving, how is it going to happen? She says, because she says I am a virgin, what she literally says, you may even have it in your margin, uh, because I know no man. How is this going to happen apart from the act by which it normally happens? And so this miracle, we often call it, is the virgin birth. The birth was really not a miracle. The conception was the miracle. The virgin conception is what was incredible in Mary's mind and even in our mind as we think about it. I love that uh, Don used Galatians 4 in his uh, devotional today, as, as uh, he shared in that wonderful service that we just heard, that in the fullness of time, the fullness of time included so many things. I mean, uh, the Roman roads were all set up. The Greek language was all ready. God had been using hundreds of years of secular history to prep uh, the world for the gospel. 
for the birth of Jesus. And even what they call the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome, that there was universal peace because Rome ruled the world and you don't oppose Rome. And so there was peace. There were highways to take the message. There was a language everybody understood in the fullness of time. God brought Christ. And we're told in that same passage that uh, he was born of a woman. Born of a woman. This is Paul's version of the virgin birth. Also, if we go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, we see what the Bible, what scholars typically refer to in the Bible as the first mention of the gospel. When the Lord tells Satan that uh, the, the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. This is the seed of woman, born of a woman, Mary. You can imagine Mary having read Genesis 3 all her life to come to realize that the seed of woman, and she was the woman. How incredible that would have been to have that, to put that together. So Dr. Luke gives us the most detailed account of how this, this conception would occur. Mary's question wasn't the same as Zacharias. Just prior to this, Zacharias is also told he and his wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a miracle baby, except their baby is a miracle because they're too old. Uh, Joseph and Mary, they were young. I mean, they were just about to get married. So for them, getting pregnant was not a problem. But, uh, but it's a problem when it's a virgin birth. <laughs> you know, a, an old woman getting uh, pregnant is a miracle unto itself. But a virgin getting pregnant? That's, that's beyond impossibility. And yet, Gabriel says this is exactly how it's going to happen. So Mary asks the question, how can this be? And so this is the question that Gabriel answers. And I would like to sort of slow down for a minute as we look at Gabriel's answer, because the words that Gabriel used give us more insight into the process of how this incredible miracle happened, even though after we're done with all of it, we're still going to go, that's just amazing even though we might have that much more of an understanding of how it happened. So in answering her question, how can this be, look at what Gabriel says. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. So let's just stop there. We'll take this little bit by little bit. And the first thing is the Holy Spirit will come upon you. There's a couple of words that Luke uses here to describe how this miraculous conception would have happened by the Holy Spirit. First of all, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to be the initiator in this. And also, he uses the word, the phrase, our phrase, come upon her. What does that mean, to come upon her? Well, when you're trying to understand a biblical author, Here's a simple rule of interpretation. How are those same words used in the paragraph or the context, or like the chapter, or the book, or if that author has written another book, or the testament, and then ultimately the whole Bible is your context. But it kind of goes that way. So if you're looking for a phrase, start in the context, go to the chapter, go to the book, go to the author, and then the Testament, and then ultimately the whole Bible. So that's what we want to do with this phrase here, 
the Holy Spirit come upon her. Keep your finger in Luke, if you would, and turn to Acts chapter 1, which was also written by Luke. So turn from Luke 1 to Acts 1. And on your way there, listen to a verse from Isaiah. Now, Isaiah obviously was not written in the same language that Luke was written in. Luke was written in Greek, the Old Testament. Isaiah was written in Hebrew. But there was a translation from the Hebrew to the language of the day, Greek. It was that translation we affectionately call the Septuagint. <laughs> What does that mean? But that's what it's called. And so there is a lot of Greek in, in the Old Testament in the sense that it was translated into Greek. Now, that's not inspired, but it does give us insight into the language. And that's the only reason that I want to read this to you. So listen to Isaiah 32, verse 15. In the Greek, the, the English, which is translated from the Greek, which is translated from the Hebrew. Isaiah 32, verse 15, the translation of the Septuagint says, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field. Isaiah is talking about the time when the Holy Spirit of God is going to indwell Israel during the coming kingdom of God. And it's a blessing that's going to bring new life to Israel. And so we see this outpouring in part where the Spirit of God is poured out and Luke uses this exact word in Acts chapter 1, which is where you are. So look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus is speaking here. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So Luke, writing Acts chapter 1, uses the same words that he used in Luke chapter 1, and the Holy Spirit in both contexts is coming upon someone. In verse 8 we just read, Jesus predicts that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon his church and will empower them, as a result, to be witnesses all over the world. So this gives us a little bit of insight that Luke compares the empowering of God's church to do what they couldn't do otherwise, that is, go all over the world and proclaim the gospel and be witnesses. So, flip back to Luke 1 and understand now, with Luke using that exact same word, but now in the context of Mary, saying that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her. In other words, the, the, the Spirit of God is going to empower her to do what she couldn't do otherwise, just as the Spirit of God would later empower the church to do what they could not do otherwise. That the Holy Spirit would fill Mary and empower her to conceive. Um, so, Let's, let's read again. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. We'll read a little farther. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. There's the second word. So the first 
is come upon you. The second is overshadow you. What does that mean? Okay, so once again, let's turn to Luke, same book, chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, Luke uses this word again. And on your way, listen to Exodus 40, verse 35, again translated from the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Exodus 40, verse 35 says, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So at the end of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle is set up for the very first time, and the glory of the Lord in the form of that cloud overshadows that tabernacle and then fills that tabernacle, so much so that even Moses couldn't go inside. So there is this sense of this overwhelming presence of the glory of God. So we're in Luke chapter 9. Luke uses the same word again to describe the glory of Christ when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. And look how Luke writes it. Luke 9, down in verse 34. Luke 9, 34. While he was saying this, in other words, Peter, while he was saying what he didn't understand, verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud formed. So think what we just read in Exodus. The cloud formed and began to overshadow them. There's the word. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The cloud is said to overshadow them. So it just envelops them. And they're they're obviously in the presence of the glory of God. They were overshadowed by God's glory. So evidently, this was the same way it was with Mary. So back once again to Luke chapter 1. Because Luke uses that exact same word, that the glory of God overshadows her. So first of all, the Holy Spirit empowers her to do what otherwise she could not do, and that's conceive. And then the glory of God overshadows her, that his presence is just in, in its fullness over her. And then uh, verse 35, once again, let's read it and take another phrase. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. That this conception over you, Mary, is with the power of God and the presence of God, so much so that the child is the Son of God. Not the Son of Joseph, but the Son of God. Not only did Gabriel say how the impossible would happen, how a virgin could conceive, but he also gave an indication of who this would be, the Son of God. Uh, you may be familiar with church history. If not, it's probably pretty Dullsville for you. But um, the first few centuries after Christ and the apostles, in Alexandria, Egypt, there was a bishop down there named Arius. Arius 
got the notion that the Son of God actually had a beginning and that he was created by God, but that he was not God himself. Well, how do you think that went with the other bishops that actually read the New Testament and believed it for what it said? There was a huge controversy because Arius had a significant following and he was beginning to sway people away from what they had believed since the time of Christ. That is, that Jesus was in fact, is in fact, the Son of God, God in the flesh. So the Emperor Constantine um, basically called for an official council of church leaders. It was the very first council that had happened in uh, AD 325. 300 bishops got together at uh, a little town called Nicaea, and they debated this, and they talked about this. And one of the bishops that likely traveled there was named Nicholas. Nicholas. And we know him more affectionately as Saint Nick, or Santa Claus, or Father Christmas. Now, all that part is legend. I mean, it was true that Nicholas, this bishop, was uh, very generous. He gave gifts to the poor. And this is how this legend became that we understand uh, as Santa Claus. But there was a true Nicholas. You can go to Myra in uh, Turkey today, and uh, they've got a church that you can actually walk through and see where Nicholas was the bishop. But Nicholas went probably, it's not 100% sure, but he probably went to this council in Nicaea. And there's an urban legend that Nicholas got so angry at Arius that he punched him. Now, how do you feel about Santa Claus now? <laughs> in fact, I, mark my words, as you look on Facebook or various other places in social media this month, you're going to see memes and these uh, little videos or cartoons of, uh, of uh, St. Nicholas punching or Santa Claus punching Arius. And if you, if you doubt, doubt it, just look up cartoon Nicholas punches Arius and you'll see all of them. They're kind of funny. They're kind of funny to watch. But like I say, it's an urban legend, and it probably never happened because the legend of the punch didn't even show up until about a thousand years after Nicholas was dead. But what's ironic, though, uh, even though it may not be true, is that the divine Son of God, who also became man, would be defended by Nicholas, whom we also remember each Christmas, not for defending the incarnation of Jesus, but nevertheless, now we're in the know and we can give three cheers to Santa for doing that, if nothing else. But the Council of Nicaea produced the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is the one creed that all branches of Christianity, whether it's Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, can all hold hands and say together. It is that basic in its understanding and its doctrine. And part of it goes like this. I'll quote it, or I'll read it. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. There's a lot of theology in that, but basically you can tell they were very specifically saying, we are declaring that the Son of God was not created at Christmas, that he is eternal past, the Son of God. And of course, this, 
this is Orthodox Christianity, and Arius was booted off the island. So the Bible refers to Jesus Christ as the Word of God. What else is referred to as the Word of God? The, the Bible. The Word of God. <laughs> we call this the Word of God. But Jesus was all, is also called the Word of God. And it's interesting when you look at these two words of God in the Bible, they both came about through the same means. The uh, Jesus, the Son of God, came about because the Holy Spirit superintended the process through an imperfect human to produce a perfect product, Jesus, the Word of God. The Bible's the same way, that God worked through the pens of people, imperfect people, to produce a perfect Word of God, at least in its originals. And our copies are perfect to the degree that they reflect the originals. Total bunch of debate of the extent of that, but... Uh, bottom line is, with all the research that's been done, we can have an, an incredible confidence that what we're holding in our laps is the Word of God. But let me ask you, do you think when Mary asked Gabriel how this miracle would come about, and Gabriel goes through all this and says, well, here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. The Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Then Mary went, oh, got it. <laughs> At the best, she could go, okay, so Joseph's not involved. There was still tons of confusion. And even though we've looked at these words, and somehow the Spirit of God gives her power, somehow the presence of God overshadows her and envelops her, we're still sort of left going, it's incredible. It's a miracle. And there's no other way to explain it. The Bible gives us its best effort to describe the indescribable. And all we can do is worship at the God who was able to bring this about. But Mary obviously had many thoughts that ran through her mind, not the least of which how she, a virgin, could conceive, but she also knew that while uh, bringing the Messiah into the world would bring joy to the world, it might not bring so much joy to her. Because not everyone saw Gabriel, namely Joseph. How do you think it landed when Mary said, Joseph, you won't believe this? He's like, you're right. I don't believe this. I don't believe it. Mary said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm expecting, and, uh, and the angel came and and. And he's like, no, this is too much for any man to believe. And he planned, as we know, to quietly divorce her. So we know that he didn't believe her until an angel came to Joseph. And Joseph's like, whoa, she's telling the truth. And to his credit, amazingly, he believes it as well. And they walk on hand in hand, trusting God and dealing with the social fallout that occurs for a, a woman who is pregnant prior to the time that she's supposed to be. They were engaged, but they had not yet officially been married or definitely had not yet consummated the marriage. And uh, the public knew this, Joseph and Mary knew this, and so we know that they would have been ostracized and sneered at by the people. It's just the way it was. And Mary 
willingly accepted this. And remarkably, we see her response in verse 38. Look at these incredible words. Uh, back up to verse 36, so we didn't read that. Gabriel says, Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What an incredible response. Mary didn't ask a ton more questions. She didn't say, um, I am so honored by this, but I'm going to have to decline. <laughs> she didn't. She said, Lord, I am your servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And what she doesn't say is, and also all that's going to happen as a result of me, uh, of what's going to happen. And then the angel leaves. But in, in, the, grace, in the grace of God, he gives uh, Mary a sign. And that is that her relative Elizabeth, we're, we're told, has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was barren is now in her sixth month. And that is the sixth month that we read back up in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to, to Mary. And so, if we look at verse 39, what's the next thing Mary does? She hops, skips, and jumps down to Elizabeth. I want to see this. Because even though the, the, the angel said the truth, can you imagine how encouraging it would have been for Mary to see this miracle baby bump? in old lady elizabeth incredible i read this week maybe you saw it as well um there's a lady in uganda 70 year old woman gave birth to twins this week of course she was you know scientifically fixed to do that it wasn't a natural conception but amazingly 70 year old woman gave birth to twins in uganda um, you could just look it up. The, the why question is, I mean, it was social. I actually did read because I sort of wondered why in the world. There's lots you just don't want to say there, but anyway, you just look it up. But my point is that 70-year-old woman, it, it made the news because it's incredible. But it only happened because science got involved and manipulated things to make it happen. It didn't happen naturally. It can't happen naturally. And of course, this is what um, this is what why it was such a miracle for Elizabeth as well. So uh, Gabriel's talking to her. She believes the impossible, and she moves on to um, give birth to Jesus, as we know so well. I love the words that Gabriel say, say to her because they are said to us as well in verse 37. Verse 37 says, nothing will be impossible with God. It's not just that nothing is impossible. You might have a marginal note, and I hope you do. Literally, Gabriel said, not any word is impossible with God. Meaning, God will do anything he says. Not any word is impossible. If God says it, it's not impossible. 
It's not impossible. It's not that we can just dream up whatever we want and nothing's impossible with God. Rather, it is everything that God says he will do. That's what it means. And Mary submits to that. And that's a great thing to hang on to in verse 37, that not any word is impossible with God because there's a lot of words in God's word, a lot of promises, a lot of things that he tells us. And humanly speaking, today, you may be dealing with the impossible. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's the fallout from a divorce. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's passions. Maybe it's your self-worth. Maybe it's your fear of the future. We've all got things that to us seem to be roadblocks that we can't get around. They are impossible. But the reality is we've got a book of promises. And in that book, one of the verses tells us that not any word is impossible with God. God will get you through it. God will help you through it. He can. And our response is to be like Mary in verse 38. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. May the impossible be done to me according to your word. May this roadblock that I'm facing be done to me according to your word. We submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, to the Spirit of God, and to the Father. It's an extraordinary response. Now, leave Luke 1, you can leave it for good, and look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Gabriel's announcement to Mary proclaimed that she was a favored one. Favored one. It's translated there as an adjective. We read it, greetings favored one, but it's actually the original Greek term comes from a verb. It's a verb that means filled with grace. Filled with grace. And it's very significant because there's, that same verb appears only one other time in the entire New Testament here in Ephesians 1 related to you. Ephesians 1, look at verse 5. Paul writes, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Look down at verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a pledge, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. That's repeated several times here in Ephesians. We read it first of all in verses 5 and 6 that say that uh, he freely bestowed on us. And then also we read it down in verse 14, praise of his glory, that the Spirit of God is given as a pledge. Now, how is this significant to, to the Christmas story? Because the, the words in verse 6, freely bestowed, 
At least that's the New American Standard. I'm not sure if you've got a different translation, how it's translated there. But the words freely bestowed on us come from the exact same verb that Gabriel said to Mary, favored one. Favored one. A couple of observations we can make as we compare these. Number one, in both cases, God gave grace through his choice and election not through the righteousness of the recipient. God chose Mary. Greetings, favored one. And here in Ephesians 1, we're we're told, He predestined us, and He freely bestowed on us His grace. The second observation is that answers the question, what was the means by which this favor happened? How did it happen? And so here's a principle. If you want to write something down, you can write this down. Because of Jesus, Mary was highly favored. Because of Jesus, you are highly favored. Because of Jesus, Mary was highly favored. Because of Jesus, you are highly favored. Greetings, favored ones. Gabriel could say that to us as well today. The Apostle Paul tells us that his grace was freely bestowed on us in Jesus Christ, the Beloved. Now, in writing to the Ephesians, we, we read this. So, here's another question to you. Whom did Jesus give the responsibility of taking care of his mother? John. And when did that happen? At the cross. So at the end of Jesus' life, the Apostle John now has a responsibility of taking care of Mary. Okay, now that's in the Bible, so that's sort of easy. But now if you get into church history, where did John go? Where did John end his life? Not Patmos. Ephesus, exactly. Interesting that the book of Ephesians is the only other time that mentions this. And John went to Ephesus, and Mary probably also went to Ephesus. In fact, if you go to Ephesus today, you can visit a church that's dedicated to Mary. Of course, there's churches dedicated to Mary all over the world. But in Ephesus, there's probably good reason that, uh, that it's dedicated to her. Now, it's total conjecture for me to make that connection based on the geography, but it is an uncanny connection. And also, just before writing to the Ephesians, Paul wrote to the Corinthians from Ephesus and said that uh, the body of Christians are the temple of the Holy Spirit who live within us. Luke tells Christians that they have the power through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Christ in the whole world. Uh, I came across a couple of letters that kids wrote to Santa Claus, good old St. Nick. Not the one that punched Arius, but the legend. Some of them are pretty good. One, one letter says this. Dear Santa, you didn't bring me anything good last year. You didn't bring me anything good the year before that. This is your last chance. <laughs> Signed, Alfred. I love it. This is your last chance. But I love this one. This is from uh, this little boy. He says, Dear Santa, there's three little boys who live at our house. There's Jeffrey, he is two. There is David, he is four. And there is Norman, he is seven. Jeffrey is good some of the time. David is good some of the time. 
Norman is good all of the time. I am Norman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Norman said it, but we all feel it in our pride. We do. Like we've done some bad things, but on the whole, we're really good. We're really good. And the letter that Norman writes to Santa is often the prayers that we pray to God. You know, these other people, they're good some of the time. But Lord, I'm good all the time. No, we're not, are we? We're not. We want to think we are, but the reality is we're not. And this is exactly why the Son of God became man. The Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God and women to be daughters of God. Jesus became like us so that we might be made like him, holy and blameless. Gabriel told Mary, name him Jesus, Yeshua. What does Yeshua mean? The Lord saves. The Lord saves. In fact, I noticed on here, what does it say? Save his people from their sins. Matthew, right? Matthew actually tells us why he was named Jesus. We know what Jesus means, the Lord saves. Interestingly, it's just Joshua. That's what Joshua means. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. The Lord saves. But Matthew adds why he was named that. Because he will save his people from their sins. We needed a Savior. And we didn't read it, but if we were to go on in Luke chapter 2, Mary refers to God as her Savior. Mary needed a Savior, just like we did. You're facing an unknown future. End of the year, a lot of food, a lot of fun, a lot of distraction from the difficulty in your life. I don't want to take December from you. It's helpful for us to really focus and celebrate the life, the birth, the life of Jesus. But January's coming, where all those decisions, those uh, New Year's resolutions hit the reality of uh, just hard work. And we get back to dealing with the roadblocks that we're facing in our lives. You got impossible situations. And like Mary, you may be misunderstood by everybody else. And yet you know that you are highly favored with God. You are highly favored with God. And like Mary, our responsibility is to say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me as you have said. That is faith and submission to God. All right, we've got a few minutes. I wonder if there are any questions. If your question is, how did the virgin conception happen? I have no idea. So, all right, we got a question. Ben's got one right down here in front. So, thank you, Steve. Mr. Microphone. Um, I did see during the Bethlehem, but um, cause um, a virgin when Mary was a virgin, and then they just got um met with Mary and Joseph just met, and 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 her, and then King Herod um and his son looking for the firstborn king, and then um. When the, um, the three kings have a dream, they don't tell the king, and the king killed his only son. And in, in this movie that I did see, he did not kill his only son. Because he, um, 
He was afraid that he was going to die in his nightmares. Yeah, Hollywood is great in that it gives us some, some insight into thinking that we might not have thought of. But Hollywood is terrible because it also sometimes makes us confused about what the Bible actually says. The great thing, though, Ben, as you uh, suggest there, is that we go to the Word and we look at what the Bible says as opposed to just what the movies say. So I love Bible movies because they're so confusing. They draw us back to the Bible to go, what really happened? So, all right. Thanks, Ben. Uh, yes, just one question um, as far as uh, Mary is concerned and uh, just following up on, on your lesson today. Uh, a little further in Luke, it talks about the what Mary said as far as her magnificent. Mm. I, 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 is that the way to yeah. pronounce it? Magnificat. Magnificat. Uh, she's, you know, she's uh, saying all these generalities about how wonderful. My question is, do you think Mary was aware when she was overshadowed when this took place? Which I know is a very deep question, but uh, just, you know, we're. I mean, I'd, I'd say ultimately, I don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But, but we could also look at those other uh, cross references we looked at. Moses was very aware that the temple was the tabernacle. We couldn't, he couldn't go in it. The disciples were very aware uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration that they were in the presence of something. So it's a little bit of a stretch to think that, that she couldn't have been aware, but it's very possible it happened in her sleep and she just all of a sudden woke up and realized, wow, I feel fluttering. So I'm not saying that I understand that feeling, but that's how it's been described to me. <laughs> Okay, Joseph, do you have something? Yes, I just wanted to make some points. We know, obviously, that as soon as Mary greeted Elizabeth, she was pregnant. At least by then. At least, yeah. Uh, so I also wanted to make the point that you, you brought up, I think it's very important when we consider the eternal generation of the Son, that Jesus has always been God's Son, and how do we know that verse in, in Galatians that says, and in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. So he was, was his son before he was born of a woman. Exactly. Christmas didn't change the Trinity or the, re or the relationships in the Trinity. The son's always been the son. The father's always been the father. And isn't it interesting that though the Spirit of God was the one involved in the conception, the Spirit of God's not the father. The father's still the father. He was just the instrument through which the Lord used to make it happen. So uh, pretty, pretty neat. Okay, over here is the next one. Thanks, Daniel. Hi. Um, this all took place during the summer months or when the weather was warmer because they were being called for a census. And then the, the shepherds were out tending the flocks, and they wouldn't be doing that in the wintertime. They did that in the spring to protect the lambs. That's what I understand. Do you, do you think that's... I think there's a big question mark on it. You can read people that say, oh, Jesus couldn't have been born in the winter because the shepherds wouldn't be out there in the winter. I've been to Israel in the winter, and there are some very temperate days at times. So it could have been a temperate day. There are ways to explain it, you know, to where it actually did occur 
in the winter of, uh, you know, which, whichever year it happened. But we don't need to be caught in the weeds. No, you don't have to get caught in the weeds. Jesus was born. But that's, that's an excellent question. All right, good. Anybody else? Okay. Daniel, there's still another one on that side. It's not a stupid how, question. How, how old was Only Mary? if Gerald asked the question. How old was Mary when she got this little word? How old was Mary? We don't know, we don't know how old Mary was. But she was the, of the age of contracting, you know, agreement. Right. She was Mary. she was probably a teenager because that was the norm back then. Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as how old she was, we don't know. Yeah. I mean, there are physiological assumptions we can make based on the fact that she realized she didn't say, I'm not old enough yet. What she said is, I don't know a man. So there are some, some things we can guess at, but can't be conclusive. Okay. Wonderful. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that the Holy Spirit was not just in Christmas past, but he is also very much in our, our lives today. And we know that, as we've read from Ephesians 1, that we are freely bestowed with the grace of God, using the same language that the Spirit of God used to talk about how Mary is favored. We see that we are incredibly blessed, that we have been predestined, that we have been chosen to have our eyes opened at some point in time to perceive the grace of God and our need for salvation because our sins would separate us from you unless Jesus, born to live this perfect life, would die on the cross to pay for our sins. And Lord, we pray for any who might be here today who've not yet come to that place of understanding that they would need to place their faith in Jesus, that you would open their eyes, open their heart to receive the greatest gift they could ever give receive, and that is the gift of salvation. And for those of us who have received that gift perhaps many years ago, and this season is just another of many where we are busy in the details, decorating, buying, going, doing, help us also to slow down long enough to see the incredible privilege we have as those who have been given the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate this month and in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Looking forward to seeing everyone uh, this Friday night. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>